if I were to give you $10,000 a day for the rest of your life, you would have roughly $26.5 million by the time you reach 75 if you received $10,000 a day uh, for your entire life. I think that if, if, if we were to do that, I think that you would pause and, and think about how you would intentionally spend that money. I would assume. We, we'd come up with a plan of, of how we're going to save the money or what we're going to invest the money in. And what if I were to tell you that each day you have roughly 10,000 thoughts? 26 and a half million thoughts by the time you reach 75. And if we were to have $10,000 a day, most of us would think about how we would intentionally spend that. But I am willing to bet that most of us don't pause and think about how we're going to intentionally spend our thoughts throughout the day. We instead tend to kind of respond to whatever's happening in the moment to how we are feeling. And if this stack of paper right here were were to reflect our thoughts and and this filing cabinet were to reflect the things that we think on and, and this trash can right here, the things that we could potentially think on or dwell on, but don't. I, I wonder if it would look something like this. Oh, my house. This is me. This is one of the things I always say. Oh, my house is always a disaster. It's just always such a mess. Oh, my kids. They're... They're always, they're always so happy and, and playing together. <sighs> I have so much work to do. I'm so fortunate to have an income that, that provides me this home and, and, and a meal and, and a table to sit around, but my car will never be as cool as Jim's next door. I'm going to dwell on that one for a while. I'm fortunate to have a car. No, I'm not going to dwell on that one. It's always sunny here. Or it's always sunny here, depending on how you look at it. Or how about this one? I'm going to dwell on this one. I can't believe we're singing this song again in church. We never sing enough hymns. I'm going to dwell on that one. Or, it's so good to worship as a people of God. Nah. Or, why is she wearing that outfit? I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to dwell on that one. Or, I'm so thankful for my beautiful daughter. She's such a gift. It's Monday. You see, we could go back and forth, back and forth. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like I am surrounded by people that respond to the things that come at them, no matter what comes at them. We, we tend to, to file away those negative things, and, and maybe it's my profession. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor and I do have the, the joy and privilege of, of getting the front row seat to some of, of people's most just wonderful life experiences and also some of the lowest. And, and there is a time and place for lament and mourning and grief and, and venting. Anyone will tell you that. 
But do we ever pause to reflect on, on our 10,000 thoughts throughout the day, the things that we, we tend to dwell on, the things that we tend to think on? There, there are all sorts of opportunities to look at the things that come at us in life with, with a posture of gratitude and thanksgiving and joy and excitement. Or we could respond with, with a sense of Poor me, self-pity, bitterness, rage even, and, and anger, and, and fear, and worry. And this thing called thoughts, the, how we spend our thinking throughout the day, how we respond to life's situations, is Scripture has a thing or two to say about it. In fact, Scripture talks a lot about how we think and the things that we think on and how we respond in life's moments. In fact, the Apostle Paul, chained in prison, bound up, his his friends' lives were, were being held captive. He was afraid for his own life. And yet, he says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So here is Paul. Life was less than ideal as he was bound up and in chains. And yet he writes this letter to, to this church and the Philippians, and he says, he says, think about whatever is pure, whatever is noble. He could have easily said, look at me. Do you see my chains? We should all just really dwell and lament and how awful and terrible this is. And in another place, he says, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks. Not in some circumstances, but give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Words like these were penned in far less than ideal situations, and especially uh, by today's standards of, of how the world would define the good life. We would not call these circumstances the good life. Today, we call the good life when everything is going your direction, when you are just on the upswing of life, your goals, you can just check them off the box, things are going your way, you wake up every morning and you are just feeling good, the circumstances are perfect, and yet in scripture, we see people giving thanks, even in the middle of chaos and even in the middle of destruction, even in the middle of darkness and pain. And we see this even in, in the Old Testament as well, this book of Lamentations, an incredibly important book on lament that I think even we as the church could learn from today on, on how to properly lament to, to life's chaos in this world. We see that even in the middle of affliction and lament, we see gratitude and, and thanksgiving. Listen to a couple verses from Lamentations chapter 3. He begins by saying, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He continues, he says, I become the laughingstock of all my people. 
They mock me in song all day long. Obviously, there is something going terribly wrong here. He is humiliated, he is mortified, he is weeping, he is, he is lamenting, but then, listen to this, he takes a little bit of a turn, yet, he called to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. And we see this all throughout the Psalms. I, I love the way that Dallas Willard puts it. Dallas Willard says that if you spend a lifetime reading the Psalms, you will emerge understanding the human experience and the heart of God. Such truth. Because when we read the Psalms, we read that they aren't all rose-colored. These are people who are navigating some of the most challenging and significant moments of their life. They are fearing for their lives. They are oppressed. They are in pain. They are lamenting. They are mourning. And we see this in, in many of the Psalms of David. As, as he says, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Then he says, and this is, this is the case with so many of the Psalms of David. He, he turns a corner, he says, but I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down toward your holy temple. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. It's incredible when, when we understand the situations that many of these writers are, are enduring. Many of their situations are unlike anything we would have ever experienced in this life today. And yet they're in the middle of darkness and destruction in the trenches when others seem to be going up the mountain in good directions and it seems like they are being left behind. They, they, they find the words. They're able to muster up the strength as though it is coming from this, this place within. This, this real depth of, of meaning, of walking in the presence of God. They are able to respond and yet, my God is faithful and surely I will call on the name of the Lord. And we see them muster up the strength to, to sit, have these words of gratitude and thanksgiving. And interestingly, psychologists and scientists have caught on to this. They begin to study just some of the outcome and impact of, of something called positive psychology. I first heard about this from, from Dr. Brad Strawn, uh, this thing called positive psychology. And I asked Brad, Brad, could you tell us what, what some of the impacts are by, by mustering up the strength, if you will, to, to find a place for gratitude and thanksgiving, even when we're in the trenches? And so, Brad, I wondered if you could share a little bit with us. I could, and I would be happy to. <laughs> I'd feel grateful to do it, actually. Hey, I'm, I'm so grateful <laughs> oh, so you're here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the things I love about the Church of the Nazarene is we believe in the special revelation of God to us through Scripture, but we also believe in the general revelation of God to us through creation and nature, and that means we can look to science as well to see what God is up to. And so in about the 80s or so, social scientists began to recognize that psychology was focused a lot on negative things, like what made people sick. And their group of psychologists started to say, we should probably also focus on the kinds of things that might actually help people be well. And so gratitude is one of those things that a lot of people have been studying now. So the question becomes, or the question they've been asking is, what is good about gratitude? 
So I want to tell you some of those things that have emerged from the research over the last several years. Grateful people will have 10% fewer stress-related illnesses, will be more physically fit, and have blood pressure that is lowered by 12%. Pretty good. Gratitude can help you sleep better, improve your self-esteem, reduce depression, increase pro-social behavior, and it increases your resiliency when you're up against stressful experiences or traumas. Grateful people, happy people's income is roughly 7% higher. And what about youth? Grateful youth have 13% fewer fights, are 20% more likely to get good grades. Grateful teens are 10 times less likely to start smoking. Or what about, uh, what does this have to do with our relationships and our social life? Grateful people report more satisfying relationships with others and are better liked by the people around them. Grateful people also have a stronger bond with the local community. Now, one of the things you might be asking, I think, as a believer, a follower of Jesus is, well, this sounds really good. Gratitude, gratefulness sounds good, but we don't just do it for ourselves. That'd be misunderstanding scripture, I think, particularly. And that's why I like this last one. Grateful people, on average, give 20% more of their time and money to others. It may be that becoming people of gratitude actually helps us to participate more efficiently and effectively in the kingdom of God, not for our sake, but for the kingdom of God that is in our midst. I think that is so important. Uh, thank, thank you so much. I'm very good. Very good. Thank you. And I think that is so important to something that he said there, that this isn't about just bettering ourselves. I mean, that's really awesome information. And it motivates me a little bit. And it encourages me. It edifies me. It gives me a vision of, of why uh, just this, this living into gratitude and thanksgiving is so important. But, but we don't do it just for me. And that's one of the shortfalls of, of series like this. We could easily look at this series, these, these practices and these disciplines and, and these ways that we are encouraging you to order your life and structure your life so that we can better live into this vision of the good life. But it's not just about bettering me. It's about immersing ourselves in the depths and the goodness of God so that the goodness of this good life, this kingdom life, flows out of our lives in such a way that the world takes notice because there's something stunningly different about the ways that we are living. And I don't know about you, but Christians should be the most grateful people in the world People within the bride of Christ and the church should be some of the most grateful people in the world, but maybe it's because I'm a pastor, but I don't always get that. I don't always experience that. Maybe it's because all the complaints and all the negative responses to everything tends to come my direction, but, but I think we just have so much to be grateful for. When we begin to think on the faithfulness of God in Christ, the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God now, and the resurrection that is bursting forth here even now, we have everything to be grateful for. And so I think when we dig into the scriptures here, amen. And I think when we dig into the scriptures here, what we discover are, are these people who are even in the midst of lament and grief and yet find the strength to muster up gratitude. I don't think they're reaching. In other words, I don't think they stop and think, oh, this is, 
this is terrible, I should stop being so negative because science tells me that if I am positive, my income will, will increase. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what's happening. But instead, this is coming from a place of walking in the depths and the goodness and the faithfulness of this covenant-making God that's coming from a place within that their vision of the good life is being shaped and formed from the very depths of this covenant-making God. And and their, their gratitude is, is coming from a place of, of, of being thankful for, for what God has done. In other words, they may not always be thankful for the things that the world might be thankful for. In fact, their gratitude might even have a tinge of, of uniqueness to it. In other words, it might be odd to some that, that they would be grateful for the things that they are grateful for. It might be countercultural to some even. And as we walk through the grand narrative of scripture, we discover that, that gratitude and thanksgiving is central to this kingdom vision of the good life, no matter what life throws at you. In fact, we, we see that this was something that even Jesus practiced. I think it would be safe to say that when life threw lemons at Jesus, he, he made some really good lemonade. We, we see this in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, just as a, a brief example for you. Let's take a look, beginning at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because when they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This was a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, it would take more than a half years of wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed to them all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples to distribute the people. He also divided the fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls and broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. When we read passages like this, we, we tend to, and rightly so, we tend to really just focus on the miracle at hand here. Jesus was fully divine, and, and because of the power at work in him, was, was able to, to participate in miracles like this that wow us even today. 
And we, we tend to brush over the, the reality that yes, Jesus was human and Jesus was, or yes, Jesus was divine and Jesus was also human. In other words, he sat here in a crowd of hungry people and he was pretty hungry, I would assume, as well. And in my house, we, we have a word for this. We call it hangry, where you are just so hungry. You are just angry, and, and you are grumpy. Uh, oftentimes, when my boys are throwing a temper tantrum and between meals, it's, it's usually this thing called hangry. They just want to eat. Well, I would imagine Jesus was in a crowd of hangry people. The disciples were hangry. They, they begin to even just complain, Jesus, what are we going to do? They're hungry. We just need to tell everyone to go home and, and get some food in the nearby town. And, and Jesus says, no, just go and gather what you can. And the disciples are really struggling with this. They think, we, we don't have enough money, Jesus. Are you out of your mind? How are we going to do this? And, and they gather the food and, and they come back with just a really small amount of food, an armful. And Jesus takes it. And you know, Jesus, in his hangriness, could have easily responded, what are we going to do? We don't have enough food. Why are you bothering me with this, with this nonsense? I'm just here to teach, not feed people too. What do you think I am? There, there's never enough. Too many people. But Jesus' immediate response before the miracle he takes the fish and, and the loaves and he looks to heaven and he first responds with gratitude and thanksgiving as he gives thanks for the less than ideal amount that he had in his arms. Far less than ideal, 5,000 people to feed and yet he takes it and his immediate response is to give thanks and I think we so often overlook this. Jesus gave thanks before it was multiplied. Why? Because Jesus recognized that central to this kingdom vision, this, this vision of the good life that, that is painted, is, is given to us by God, that, that number one, all that we have in life is gift. And this is something we talk about over and over here at Paznas. In this, this time that we, we pass, pass the offering plates down the aisle for our tithes and offering, we recognize that, that we give because everything we have, the very breath in our lungs, the fingertips at our resources, everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have is a gift. The, the people that we hug, the hands that we hold, the people that we get to sit in a coffee shop with and, and look at eye to eye and, and share life with and, and share stories with, with the homes that we, we sit in, the couches that we, we put our feet on, the joys in life, all that we have is gift. And number two, not only is all in life gift, but we also recognize that God is present and God is good. In other words, even when life is less than ideal, 
when, when your trajectory is not in the upswing and it's in the downswing, and it seems like everyone else around you, you turn on your Facebook and you begin to look through your news feed and you begin to look at your Instagram feed and you see everyone else jet setting, everyone else going out to these nice restaurants, everyone else being able to purchase new things and, and live into this wonderful, glorious, fancy vision of, of some sort of, of good life and you think, why not me? Why am I being left behind? Or, or or worse, perhaps you find yourself this morning in the trenches of life and it seems like you cannot take one more lemon, one more thing thrown at your direction. You barely made it into this place, crawling into this place. Perhaps you could relate to the Davids. Perhaps you could rem- relate to, to the laments. Perhaps you can relate to being chained and bound up and you feel like there is just no more ounce of joy or happiness or hope in this life. But these are people in scripture, we see that even then they recognize that God is still good and, and God is still present. Even in the trenches even when, when life is less than ideal, even when this good life isn't what I thought that it would be. God is good and God is present and God is in this. God is nearer than the breath in our lungs. God is here and now. And so, again, just to back up, number one, central to this, this practicing of, of gratitude no matter what life throws at us is, is number one, all of life is a gift. Number two, God is good and God is present. And number three, this is something that we see especially in the writers of the epistles and and the New Testament is that central to their vision of the good life, the reason why why they constantly were rejoicing in the midst of of chains and and pain and, and chaos in the middle of hardships, pain, persecution, prison, and sorrow is because they viewed that all of life Every moment from the trenches to the mountaintops was viewed in light of the resurrection and the ultimate triumph in Christ. In other words, even as they were in chains, even as their friends' lives were being taken, even as they were in a significant downswing, they were able to pause and reflect that this moment right here, right now, is just a mere blip in the radar compared to the ways that the, the goodness of God is presently bursting forth and that already God is redeeming all of creation in some way that someday this story is headed somewhere, that there will be a a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more cancer, no more sorrow, no more chains, and no more pain. I recently read a great story that illustrates this uh, by a guy by the name of Robert Fulgham. He writes about a wedding of epic proportions. He said that this wedding was unlike any other wedding he'd ever seen planned before. He said there were, it was an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble just for the processional. He said there were 24 bridesmaids, 24 groomsmen, flower girls, and, and ring bears. And he said everything was just decked out in this sanctuary like you would not believe. And he said it was also just an incredibly long ceremony. He said, so, so while the bride was just waiting to come down the aisle, everything was ready, everything was set for a fairy tale wedding. He said, as the, as the bride was waiting, she, 
she got a little hungry, and so she was sat in the fellowship hall with her father, and there were some glazed almonds, some, you know, some of those pink and yellow ones, and she would grab a handful here and there, and, and then there were some mixed nuts, and she'd grab another handful here and there, and then and there was a cheese ball, and she couldn't resist those, so she had a cheese ball or two or three, and then there were some black olives, and, and she decided she'd also have some black olives, and then, and then there were some chips, and she decided that she'd have some chips, and, and then she saw some little sausages with those little frilly toothpicks, and she picked those up, popped a few in her mouth, and then there was some shrimp with bacon wrapped around, and she, she popped some of those in her mouth, and then there was some crack there, piled there with a liver plate, and she just started popping those in until it was time for her to come down the aisle, and she was ready. As the doors opened, everyone stood to their feet, and just what was going to be an epic moment, everybody turned around, and there at the doorway, they saw just a dazzling white bride, except it wasn't white from her dress, he said. He said she was white as a ghost. He said, for what was coming down the aisle was a living grenade with the pin pulled out and the bride just threw up, he said. And he said, there was just no nice way to put it. He said, she just hosed the front of the chancel there, hit two bridesmaids, hit the groom, hit the ring bearer, and even hit him, the pastor. And he said, the only two people there smiling in that moment were the mother of the bride and the groom. And he said that eventually they were able to pull themselves together and just go to a quiet room later to to make their way through the ceremonies. Everyone cried as the groom just held the bride there in his arms throughout the entire ceremony. He said, craziest thing, so 10 years later, they, they threw a party to celebrate this, this crazy wedding of epic proportions. He said they, they watched the wedding video, and as they watched the wedding video, he said everybody in the room was rejoicing. He said there was a smile on everyone's face at this party. And he said, how could this be? This, this wedding was definitely epic, but in a less than ideal way. He said it's, it's because in the end, at the end of the day, this moment was just a blip in the radar because in the end, the groom got the bride. And in the end, the bride got the groom. And in the end, they began a lifetime of marriage together, of journeying together as the husband and the wife. Does that sound familiar? In the end, the bride got the groom. In the end, the groom got the bride. We, we hear it from the words from John himself in Revelation 21. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven in the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Add whatever life situation you are going through right now to that. There will be no more of that. And the old order of things has passed away. And then it says, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, 
the wife of the lamb. I don't know where you find yourself today. Many of you are going through a situation less than ideal. You have every right to cry, to scream, to pull that pillow close to your face at night and to weep from the belly up because sometimes life is just that hard. But even as that, as we lament and as as we cry and as we scream and as it seems like the rest of the world is on some sort of upswing and we're on some sort of downswing, no matter what, this moment is a blip in the radar. For someday, the groom gets the bride. The bride is you and I. And those who are in Christ, we too will, will, we will be resurrected and we will walk on this earth, this, this newly redeemed earth, new heaven and the new earth. As this great collision comes, there will be no more sorrow, no more trenches, and no more pain. And so even as we navigate less than ideal situations, which many of you are this morning, know this with those 10,000 thoughts that you have a day. We can choose to file away only negative thoughts. We can. Or we can choose that even in the darkness and the pain, we can take on a different kind of posture and pause and and think about whatever is lovely and and pure and, and noble and praiseworthy and admirable. We can recognize that even in these moments that everything that I have now is a gift even if it's less than ideal. That, that God is good, that, that God is present and this moment is fleeting compared to the resurrection to come and the new heaven and the new earth. And it is a discipline, brothers and sisters. It is a discipline to choose to stitch our moments together with a thread of gratitude. In other words, it doesn't just happen. Yes, I myself, I I consider myself to be a glass half full person. In fact, when I'm around just negative Nellies, I I tend to squirm and I just, it bothers me when people are just so negative. But at the same time, there are days too that I have to pause and intentionally be grateful, especially as a pastor. When when we are navigating so much change in a congregation and there's shifting and and there's changing, it's, it's easy for me to come home every night to put my feet up on the table and say, this is just all failing. It's easy for me to come home and say, everybody's so mean. If I get one more mean pew card or one more mean email or this, I could easily come home and do this every night. And several months ago, I realized that I was kind of getting into that that place of just focusing only on everything going wrong. And I, I would come home and I would just tell Jeff, oh, this house is just always such a mess. It's just everything is just falling apart. And, and so I began on Sunday nights practicing gratitude. I began to just make a list of all the places where I saw the goodness of God, the presence of God, a resurrection bursting forth, of new life bursting forth. And then I started to text it to, to the, some of the board members. And, and then the board members said, this, this is so good, why don't you send it in an email to the whole congregation? And, and so thus began this email from the pastor's heart. 
where I get to just share with you some of the front row seats that I get in this congregation of the places where I get to see new life bursting forth, of of where I get to see God at work, and, and I get to share with you the things that I am grateful for. And then we even started doing this as a family at mealtime. We, we go around the table after praying, and everybody says one thing that they're thankful for. Just one thing. And sometimes the boys have a really big list, and sometimes it's hard to think of it. But this is a discipline. This is, this is a practice. And we as pastors for this series, Good Life, we, we want to resource you with ideas of, of practices. So in your bulletin, there's a... There's an example, again, of a rule of life. We've offered you supplements of books that you can be reading. And then we we have ways that you can begin practicing gratitude now. Begin it now. Make a decision before you leave this place that you are going to begin intentionally practicing gratitude, perhaps as an individual, as a couple, as a family. But make the choice to do that now. Because we as Christians should be the most grateful people to walk this planet in the history of time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Living Lord, may we be a people who discover gratitude birthed from life in the Spirit. God, it's often called the unforced rhythms of grace. May gratitude not be forced, but unforced, a rhythm of grace of what you are doing in our life. And may it be in such a way that it's stunning compared to the world. May the world see and be curious by what we are so grateful for and desire you. So God, may we honor you in all that we are and all that we do. We love you, we, we praise you, and we give thanks. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.